So we're going to start with uh, Jesus is God. Um, as I mentioned, that's a sticking point for a lot of religions and cults, right? We, we went through, uh, many of them will say Jesus is a good, was a good teacher, a good man, maybe a prophet, different things like that. But then they'll deny that he was God, right? They'll deny that part. And, and that's where they draw the line, if you will. Uh, so they'll agree that he's a man, but they'll say he was created and that he's not God. He's not co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And the theological term for this is ebionism. It's to, to admit that he, or to say that he's a man, but that he's not God. And we're going to show from Scripture that Jesus is indeed fully and truly God. <clears throat> That's where we're going to start. And we can prove it from a number of different angles. So I'm going to give you a number of different angles here. Um, you know, if you were to find someone who's going to argue this, argue against this, you could take any number of these paths or a combination. Um, but we're going to just kind of give you a lot of overwhelming uh, proof from the scripture that Jesus is and was God. All right, so let's start with uh, point A on the first page. Jesus' titles attest to his deity. So the titles that he's called by attest to his deity. And deity meaning that he's God, right? <clears throat> so one, the first title is Son of God. He's called the Son of God in Scripture. And this is in Hebrew construction or, or, or Greek as well. When you talk about Son of something, Son of God or Son of Man is another name he goes by that emphasizes his humanity. Um, the, the word that comes after the of you're, you're really saying that that's his character. That's what he is. He has the characteristics of whatever that is. So when he's being called the son of God, it's emphasizing that he has the characteristics of God, which means that he is God. So son of God means that he is God. And if you look through the scriptures, the Jewish religious leaders recognize this. They understood that by claiming to be the son of God, he's actually claiming to be of the same essence. In other words, he's claiming to be God, even though we know he's a distinct person, right? The son, but he is still of the same essence. He is God. And we see that if we turn to John 5, uh, 17, we see, see Jesus making a claim, and then we see the understanding that the religious leaders of the time had. So John 5, 17 it says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So he doesn't use the words here, son of God, but he calls God his father. So we could say by implication that he's the son. And then it says, verse 18, this, is, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they knew that that was a claim to be equal with God. Uh, if we go to John 10, starting in verse 29, then we read this. Again, he's calling God his father. Uh, verse 29, John 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So see, they, they recognized that this was a claim to be 
God. You read that if you keep reading. Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, uh, Mark 14, we don't have to go there, but in the Mark 14 passage, the, uh, the high priest asks Jesus at his trial before he was crucified, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, meaning God? And Jesus said, I am. The high priest tore his garments and said, uh, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. And so why are they considering that blasphemy? Because they are aware that he's saying that he's God with that statement. So that's one title of Jesus. The Son of God means God, that he is God. Uh, so that is an is a evidence of his deity. Another title of his is the Only Begotten. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred a number of times to as God's only or only begotten Son, depending on which translations you have. Uh, the ESV does only. So this is uh, mostly John, John and then 1 John as well. John 1 starting in uh, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So that's the word only Son. If you have a uh, NASB or a King James, it's going to say only begotten. Only begotten Son, as opposed to only. And then the same, uh, it says it again in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten or only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him Known. By the way, notice in verse 18 what it says. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known right there. It's saying it's calling him God. It's calling Jesus God, the only begotten God. John 3.16 has the same language. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son or only begotten son, depending on your English translation. You see that as well in John 3.18. And then 1 John 4, 9 also. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live, and that's only begotten in the in, uh, NASB or King James. So the term only or only begotten, what happens is people will latch on to that sometimes, especially if it says begotten. If you have the translation that says begotten, and people will think, false teachers will latch onto that and they'll think like, well, if you think about someone begotten, like in the human sense, then you're thinking of someone being born, someone who didn't exist before. So they think of in a human sense that begetting means having a child and the child didn't exist before. So they try to say, oh, that means that Jesus didn't exist for eternity, right? He didn't exist from the beginning and, and he, he was born and he was created and he came into existence. Uh, that's one of the arguments that they'll use. Uh, but that's not what that term means, and that's why sometimes it's translated, they drop the begotten so that people aren't confused with that, um, and it's just put as only sometimes. What the term in the Greek means is it being the only one of its kind with a spe specific relationship, or being the only one of its kind uh, as in being unique. So there's a, it's really pointing to uniqueness, that Jesus is the unique Son of God, that he's uh, eternally related to God as his only begotten son. But it doesn't mean that he was created. It doesn't mean that he was, uh, didn't exist until he came as a person, as a man. Right? And I think actually our, our last uh, hymn we sang in the first service said, it said, 
not created, right? Begotten, not created, right? That's emphasizing that truth, that begotten doesn't mean created. But false teachers will jump on that and say that it means created because they're thinking in, in you know, traditional human terms. <clears throat> um, yeah, we also, last week we looked at Psalm 2, which was quoted in Hebrews, and it talked about uh, the Lord's decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we talked about that last week, that that's not... Um, that, that's something from eternity past. And the, the begotten relationship between the father and the son is talking about their eternal relationship. It's not talking about um, him coming as a man. And it's not talking about him uh, not existing before that. This is from eternity past, the relationship between father and son in the Trinity. Uh, as MacArthur and Mayhew explained, the fact that a son is generated by the father guarantees that the son shares the same nature as the father. Christ in his deity, however, is not a created being. He had no beginning, but is as timeless as God himself. Therefore, the begetting that's mentioned in Psalm 2 and its cross-references has nothing to do with the origin of either his deity or his humanity. It has everything to do with him sharing the same essence as the Father. Expressions like eternal generation and only begotten son must all be understood as underscoring the absolute oneness of essence between Father and Son. In other words, such expressions aren't intended to evoke the idea of procreation. They are meant to convey the truth about the essential oneness shared by the members of the Trinity. And as such, Jesus' title then as the only Son or the only begotten Son of God indicates his deity. So that's another title that indicates that, God, that Jesus is God. The next one is firstborn. And again, some people try to use this to say that, that that's when he came into existence, that he was born and came into existence, right? That he was created. But firstborn in the Greek does not necessarily mean firstborn, as in a child and order. In fact, as John MacArthur writes, it refers primarily to position or rank. And the word that often we would use is that it really speaks of preeminence. That's really what firstborn emphasizes. He notes that in both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. He was not necessarily the first one born, right? And we see that through scripture, right? Many times God chose the one who wasn't actually chronologically the firstborn, and that's the one who became the firstborn in the sense of inheritance. Um, so he, he notes here, although Esau was, was born first chronologically, it was Jacob who was the firstborn and received the inheritance, and Jesus is the one with a right to the inheritance of all creation. That's what the firstborn means. Uh, so when we read about those, like turn to Colossians 1. This is one of the passages with that word firstborn applied to Jesus. And so what those who are denying Christ's deity would say here, is they're going to say, oh, well, this shows that Jesus is part of the creation. Uh, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so in the English, you can kind of see where somebody might argue that, right? Oh, firstborn of creation. That means he's part of the creation and he's the first. But no, that's not what it means. It means that he's preeminent over the whole creation. And if you keep reading, you'll actually see that in Colossians. Uh, first of all, look at 16. For by him all things were created. So there's the first problem. He's the one who created everything. He's not part of the creation. Uh, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, See, this is, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then here's, here's the explanation, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so that's what, what Paul is talking about here. When he's using the word firstborn, he's talking about preeminence, coming first, right? Preeminence, the most uh, important, the one with, with uh, most significant, with authority, that's Jesus, the one who receives the inheritance, and then you see some other places, Romans eight twenty nine. he's called the firstborn among many brothers, and Revelation 1, he's called the firstborn of the dead. Uh, Revelation 1, again, firstborn of the dead, does that mean that Jesus is chronologically the first one to come back from the dead? Can you prove that? Yeah, why, yeah, why, why is he not? Prove it. Because Lazarus, Lazarus right? He raised Lazarus before he was risen. You go to the Old Testament, you have the, uh, Elijah and Elisha raised uh, like the, the sons that died, right, of the widow and the, and the Shunammite. So you have examples. Jesus is not the first one who was resurrected, but he's the preeminent one of those who have been resurrected. So uh, that's what those passages are there, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4 and John 11 are those three examples of people who were raised from the dead before Jesus raised from the dead. So firstborn from the dead cannot mean that he was the first person to be raised from the dead. And again, if you, if you look, it's, it's the idea of preeminence that we see in Colossians. Um, we also see in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 89, 27. So just turn there quickly. Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 27 says of the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn. And then explains what that means. The highest of the kings of the earth. So again, firstborn is the highest, the preeminent one. That's what it's speaking of. It's not about order. He's the preeminent one who inherits all creation. Um, As another commentator writes, Jesus has preeminence over all creation and the church by legal right of inheritance due to his eternal relationship as divine son and his being the creator of all things. He is preeminent because he is God. So firstborn, that's our third title that shows that Jesus is God. Uh, Next, the Alpha and the Omega, or the first and the last. Alpha and Omega is meaning first and last because in the Greek, that's the first alphabet and the last alphabet. So we would maybe say the A to Z, right? Um, first and the last, or Alpha and Omega. Uh, this title is applied to Yahweh in Isaiah. I, I give several passages there, Isaiah 41.4. Um, I'll just read you the part that it says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And then 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first and I am the last. So over and over we see that term in Isaiah, that God is the first and the last and there is no other God. And then in Revelation 1, we see again, but in, this, in the Alpha and Omega, now it's said that way in the Greek, Revelation 1, 5 to 8. 
It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He's talking about Jesus here. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. And then I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So again, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But then you turn to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22. And this is Jesus speaking about him coming. 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, Yahweh from the Old Testament, and Jesus is the, is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So the Alpha and the Omega is a title that Jesus claims that shows that he is Yahweh. Uh, next, image of God. Another title that Jesus is called. Um, we could look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and Colossians 1.15 talk about this. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then we read already Colossians 1.15 that says he is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1.3 calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's the image of the invisible God, meaning that he manifests the attributes and the character of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And as Colossians 2.9 says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, John MacArthur explains from Hebrews 1.3 that exact representation translates a Greek term used for the impression made by a die or stamp on a seal. The design on the die is reproduced on the wax when you press it in, right? Jesus Christ is the reproduction of God. He is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. Colossians 1.15 gives a similar illustration of this incomprehensible truth. He's the image of the invisible God. The word image means a precise copy, an exact reproduction as in a fine sculpture or portrait. To call Christ the icon is the word in the Greek of God means he's the exact reproduction of God. And thus Jesus could say that those who saw him saw the Father, right? He would say he said that many times. John 12, John 14, whoever sees me sees him who sent me, he says in John 12. And similarly in John 14. Um, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. We haven't seen God the Father, but we see Jesus and seen Jesus. Jesus, has, has, Jesus explains or exegetes the Father. He shows, he's, he, he shows God's character because he is God. So Jesus makes the Father known. All that Jesus is and does explains who God is and what he does. And so we see the image of God means that Jesus is God. Lord is the sixth one. Lord, so Lord is kurios in the Greek. If you go through the 
uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, then that's the word that is used to translate Yahweh. So if you read in the Greek, the translation of the Old Testament, when it says the name Yahweh, for us, usually it looks like capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's translated Kyrios. And so primarily, uh, that word is used for Yahweh. And in the New Testament, it's primarily used of Jesus. So right there, there's an equivalence that this word that's primarily applied to Yahweh is then applied to Jesus in the New Testament. That's not to say that Lord can't be used in other ways. In fact, it can be used in a, in a human sense to talk about someone who's a master, right? A Lord of someone. But uh, it is the word that is used to translate Yahweh. And we see uh, it applied to Jesus in several passages. Um, Matthew 3, 3, John the Baptist talks about um, that Isaiah, this is fulfilling Isaiah when Jesus is there. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he applies the word Lord. Uh, Luke 1.43, Elizabeth says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's talking about Mary being the mother of her Lord. So she's applying Lord to Jesus. And then if we turn to Luke 2 together, this is a Christmas passage, right? Luke, uh, Jesus' birth, Luke 2, verse 11 So the angels come to the shepherds and they tell them about the birth of Jesus, right? So verse 11, Luke 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So they apply the word Lord to Christ and then you keep going down and you hit verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they're talking about God. Right? So in the same passage, we see Christ is the Lord, and the Lord has made this known by sending the angels to them. God is the Lord, Christ is the Lord. And uh, Revelation 19.16 calls Jesus the Lord of Lords. So there's another use of the word Lord for Jesus. So Lord attests to Jesus' deity. All right, so that's our first, first argument. If you look at the titles of Jesus... They tell you that he is God. We've got many other things we can look at as well. Any questions or comments before we go to Jesus' words? Yeah. So when you talk about that Jesus is in the image of God, what's the difference between that and that we're in the image of God in Genesis 1? So the difference is when we look at Jesus, he's, he's the exact imprint of God's nature, which we could never say about ourselves. So when we're talking about ourselves as in the image of God, I mean, I guess there's some debate over that, of what exactly that is. But um, I would explain it that the way we're in the image of God is that we we can think, we can reason, we we can make moral decisions, we know that there's such a thing as right and wrong. Um, So there's characteristics of that that humans have that animals don't, right? Uh, Even having a soul. Um, So you have those characteristics, but we're not the exact imprint of God's nature. We just have some of the characteristics. Uh, if you go, you go through the uh, attributes of God, there are some that are communicable and some that are not, right? And we, we don't have the incommunicable ones, but Jesus does. And that's another argument you could go through. Um, I didn't put that one here, but you could go through the scriptures and you could look at the attributes of Christ, 
And you could show that Christ has attributes that only God has. And you could use that. That's an argument as well to show his deity, that he's the, he has these things that only God has. Um, we do talk about some of the works that he does here that only God did. Like Jesus created everything. But wait, God created everything. Yes. <laughs> but so did Jesus, right? So things like that. God's the one who created everything and Jesus created everything. So he's God. That's something that only God uh, did. Yeah. Sure, but the angels are ultimately ministering even to us. Mm-hmm. So, in the position, we're going to be higher than them. Yeah. yeah. And the scripture even says we'll judge the angels. Yes. Yeah. Well, Scripture never says that, so I wouldn't say that. But they do have some characteristics that we do, that God does. Yeah. Well, we're co-heirs as well mm-hmm. Yeah. with Christ. And also, too, the difference between a made in the image of, there's lots of ways to make it an image of. You can do an imprint, will show you mm-hmm. every exact line versus something drawn. Yeah. Because when you draw, it's not... Yeah, that's a good picture, because Jesus would be the exact, the exact, but we would not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we're going to become like him, and angels are not. Right. So, yeah. All right, next. Oh, okay, real quick. Yeah. And, we, and don't think that stamped and the word MacArthur kept using reproduction. Again, don't think that means that, oh, yeah, Jesus got created and he was given this. It's like, no, no, that's how he's been since eternity past, right? That's, that's who he is. He is God. That's always been the case. But it's kind of hard to put that in language for our, our minds to grasp. <laughs> but it doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, there was, then, then God made a copy of himself. That's not what he's saying. It's, and Jesus isn't a copy of God. Jesus is a distinct person, but he has all the, all the attributes that God has, right? And this, he's of the same essence as how we usually say it. So he is God. Okay, let's go to the next point. Uh, Jesus' words attest to his deity. So things that Jesus said show that he's, he's God. Um, he called God his father, and he called himself the son of God. I think we already looked at at those passages there, so I'm not going to go into that again. You saw that already, right? The Jewish leaders were going, wanted to kill him and considered it blasphemy when he called God his father. Um, they were seeking to kill him for that because they understood that that was a claim to be equal with God. Uh, he showed the promised Messiah would be God. and he, So he was implying, because everybody was thinking he might be the Messiah, he was showing that, well, the Messiah would be God. And since he's the Messiah... That's showing that he, he is God. And we looked at this last week as well. Psalm 110, he quoted Psalm 110, 
which, where David says, uh, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus argues that, well, David's talking to someone who's his descendant, who he would not call my Lord, right? And then also God is putting this person at his right hand, which would not be just a mere human, ordinary human. So both of those things are showing that this Messiah is actually God. He's a descendant of David, and yet he's God. Um, So we looked at that last week. Um, So we'll go to the next one. Uh, Number three, he claimed to be one with the Father. Okay, we just read that passage as well. John 10, uh, 30, I and the Father are one. The Jewish religious leaders, as we saw, understood this to be a claim of deity, so they were going to stone him for blasphemy. Number four, he used the term I am for himself. And that's the name that God revealed, right? His covenant name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, uh, 13 to 15. He said, when Moses says, well, if I go out to Israel and say that the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what's his name? What should I say? And then God tells them, he says, I am who I am. Say to this people, I am has sent me to you. Um, And so that's the name that he gives him. A name that has uh, many implications, including um, self-existence. He exists on his own with no, not needing nothing from anyone, depending on no one. Um, so that's one of the things that speaks of. He, he is. It speaks of his eternality, too, that he, he is always. He, he just is. Not just he was or he will be, but he is. Uh, his name is forever, as he says. Uh, so he calls, so he, God calls himself I am, and that's the, that's the name. That's where the name Yahweh uh, comes from, right? So he is this I am from the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along and he makes a number of statements with I am in them. And there's kind of two categories of these statements. There's, the, there's what, are, what are called the formal I am statements. And then there's the informal I am statements. The, the formal ones are the seven ones that are in John where he says I am and he attaches a metaphor to it. <laughs> And uh, nonetheless, the theologians see in here that the, the emphasis on I am, even with the other part after it, is still, uh, many people understand that to be a claim to be God. So he says, for example, I am the bread of life, right? That's one of his I am statements. I am the light of the world. That's another one. Um, and then he says, I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life, Right. And so he says, I'm the true vine. So he has all of these I am statements that are called the formal ones. And then he has the informal ones, which, are, which don't have anything attached to them. So this is even more clear because he just says, I am, without anything else attached to it. Uh, so we look, if you look at those, uh, let's look at John 8, John 8, 24. John 8 has a couple of them, probably the most... Well-known one is a little bit farther into John 8. But John 8, 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And actually, in the English, we supply the he. It's not really there. He, He literally just says, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then they say, who are you? And then he goes on in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So he just calls himself, I am. 
Uh, Of this, John MacArthur writes, the Lord's use of the absolute unqualified phrase, I am, so there's nothing else with it, no metaphors, it's just I am, is nothing less than a direct claim to full deity. Jesus was applying to himself the tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh, often translated uh, when they spell it out with the vowels, Yahweh. The name of God that was so sacred that the Jews refused to pronounce it. The Jews of Jesus' day understood perfectly that he was claiming to be God. And if that's not clear, just keep reading in John 8. Uh, and the same discussion continues. He goes to uh, by the verse 58, and then he says, this is the most well-known one, I think. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Notice that the Jewish leaders picked up stones then, verse 59 says, to throw at him because of blasphemy. So they're seeking to kill him. Why? Well, they recognize by saying, before Abraham was, I am, like you would think in the English, what's the normal way you would say that? Before Abraham was, I was, right? He doesn't say that. He says, I am. Also, if you just work through the implications of that, he existed before Abraham did. Well, how did he exist before Abraham did? And they, they say that too, right? You're not even 50 years old. How, did you, how could you be there when Abraham... Well, that's what he's saying too. I, I, I'm eternal. I've existed for all time. But he says, particularly, he purposely picks that tense and says, before Abraham was, I am. And it's an unusual tense. You would say, I was. In, but he's pointing to being God. That's the whole point. I am is the name of Yahweh. So then they seek to kill him uh, for blasphemy. And then one more time in John 18, when the, they come to arrest Jesus, he says, I am again. And then that's when they all fall to the ground. This, if you remember that amazing account, while they're about to arrest him, they, the crowds come, they're all going to arrest Jesus. They, they're looking for him. He says, uh, John 18, verse 4, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Again, that's really just I am in the Greek. And then Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. So again, he's repeatedly saying, I am, I am. So he's claiming the name of Yahweh from the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. Uh, next, we see him equating himself with God, in, with God the Father in many ways here. Um, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll kind of leave those for you to look up. But he claims that to know him is to know the Father. Uh, John eight nineteen. if you knew me, you would, also know, you would, you would know my Father also. Uh, he says to see him is to see the Father. Uh, for example, John 12, 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He says to believe in him is to believe in the Father. Uh, for example, um, John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. To hate him is to hate his Father. John 15, 23 to 25, whoever hates me hates my Father also. And then uh, to honor him is to honor the Father John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So he's, he's making equivalencies between all these things with the Father should be the same with the Son. Next, God the Father attested to Jesus' deity. 
And uh, I'll just mention in particular Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So just think about that for a moment. God is commanding that all the angels worship Jesus. So who's to be worshipped? Oh, God only, right? Ten commandments. Only God is to be worshipped. God is commanding the angels to worship Jesus. Is God commanding sin? <laughs> no, right? No, God is not commanding people to sin. So God tells angels to worship the Son. Then God is saying, by implication, that he's saying the Son is God. He is to be worshipped. So God the Father attests to his deity. Uh, we also see uh, Hebrews 1.8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we see that the Father calls the Son God. All right, the next one. Jesus claimed privileges that attest to his deity. So he claimed certain things. He accepted certain things. The first one is that he accepted worship. Right? Like when, when people would fall down and they'd start worshiping angels or, or Paul or somebody like that, they'd be like, stop worshiping me. I'm not God. Right? Don't do this. But Jesus accepted worship. People worshiped him. They would drop down on their knees in worship and he accepted it. He never told them to stop. And so we see that he accepted and will accept worship. Um, I'll just hit a few of these here. I give you a whole bunch of passages. Um, Matthew 15, 25. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Uh, maybe, well, maybe you could argue that's not worship. Maybe she's just uh, prostrating herself. Well, how about Matthew 28, 16 and 17? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Uh, John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe. This is the blind man that Jesus healed. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Uh, Thomas, in John 20, 28, when he sees the risen Christ, my Lord and my God, he's calling him God. Um, and then again, Hebrews 1, 6, God commands the angels to worship Jesus. Philippians 2 talks about how every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ. And then... Um, Revelation has a passage as well where the, the, um, they're praising and worshiping the lamb on the throne. All the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped in verse 14. So Jesus accepted worship and will be worshiped in the future as well. Uh, second, he accepted prayer. Uh, he talked about uh, praying to him. Um, and then we, we see a number of examples there. And again, in the interest of time, I'll kind of skip over those. Um, but people came to him and they, and they prayed. They prayed to him, referring to him as Lord. For example, Acts 1, when the apostles are seeking a replacement for Judas, um, they pray to Jesus. So he accepted prayer. Uh, Stephen prayed to him as well. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So there's people praying to Jesus. Uh, the next one, we already saw the verse. He's to be honored as the Father is honored. John 5, 22, uh, 23. For this Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Number four, he forgives sin. 
which is something only God can do. Um, Psalm 51 talks about how our sin is ultimately only against the Lord. Uh, Only the offended party can forgive. And since sin is against God, ultimately, he's the one that is the only one that can forgive. And the Jewish religious leaders understood this, right? If you look at the account in Mark 2, Oops, I went too far. Matthew, Mark. Mark 2, just starting at the beginning, he goes to Capernaum. There's many gathered there. Uh, They bring a paralytic. Uh, Verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus says he can, the man's sins are forgiven. Jesus is forgiving someone's sins. And then the Pharisees react, Oh, well, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they understood that truth. And they understood that by doing that, he's claiming to be God. But of course, what they didn't want to accept was that that's because he is God. But they understood that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus forgave sins. So he is, again, saying that he's God, showing that he's God, by claiming to be able to forgive sins. Point E, Jesus works attest to his deity. Creation. Uh, we mentioned this earlier, that Genesis 1.1 says God created the heavens and the earth. But then we read in Colossians, and I give you some other verses there as well, multiple places in scripture that say that Jesus created everything. So God created everything, Jesus created everything. The spirit as well. So he's God. Okay? He created everything. And then we see um, Jesus' providence, which is something, which is the which is the ability that God has, right? He has providence over everything. Colossians one seventeen says that He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And then Hebrews one three, which we read earlier as well, says He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus holds everything together. That's something God does. Uh, he raised Himself, and He will resurrect the dead. So He has the power of resurrection. And then judgment, and we read on that as well. Um, God is the one who can forgive. God is the one who judges, but God has given all judgment to Jesus. Jesus is going to judge. He is the judge and will be the judge of all. Now to point F, the apostles and the New Testament writers attest to his deity. Right? You read in John 1, and John says that Jesus was is God, right? John 1, 1, right from the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then you, if, you, if you say, well, okay, but who's the word? Are you sure the word is Jesus? Just drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the word is Jesus. And it says Jesus uh, was uh, God, was with God and was God. So John says Jesus is God. We read Thomas' statement from John 20, 28, after he saw the risen Christ, my Lord and my God, he calls him. We saw in Hebrews where God says for the angels to worship the Son. So the writer of Hebrews is showing that. And then Paul in Philippians 2, where he talks about... um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. He is God. He was God. He is God. Um, There's a lot you could unpack in that passage. Emptying himself is not saying that he ceased to be God. Um, It's talking about him taking on the form of a servant. So he never stopped being God. He was in the form of God. He, he, He took on humanity, but he remained and always has been and will be God. So he was in the form of God. He had equality with God. In other words, he's God. Um, and then uh, Romans 5, Paul calls, refers to the Christ who is God over all. He calls Jesus God. And then you see passages like Titus, also by Paul, where he calls him God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's God and he's also the Savior Peter does that as well in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Lord and Savior in 2 Peter 2.20. So that's just a, a sampling where you see, okay, throughout the New Testament, different writers of the New Testament, they're all affirming, they're all attesting that Jesus is God. And then I just threw in a few more on the last point. Others that attested to his deity, I mean, we wouldn't take these people's opinions as the, you know, as on their own as a proof, but, but more evidence that they recognized it. The Roman centurion, truly this was the son of God after, the, after Jesus died and the earthquake took place. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily take him, his um, account, but he recognized that. He recognized from it that, that, that Jesus is God. And then, of course, John the Baptist, he says in John 1.34, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. And uh, then we have Martha in John 11, before he raises Lazarus, Lazarus, she says in verse 27 of John 11, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then even demons attest to Christ's deity using the term Son of God that we already talked about. Mark 3 is one example. Luke 4, 41 is another. When he was casting them out, they would cry out and say, You are the Son of God. So they recognized who he was. And again, that means he's God. The son of God means he's God. All right, so that's a, a number of different paths you could take in, a, in looking and you know, showing. And, and uh, there are others. As I said, you can go through, through Christ, some of Christ's attributes and show that he has the attributes of God as well uh, as a proof. Uh, but this is a number of ways from the scripture that it's clear that Jesus is God. So when people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, that's patently false. I mean, it's clear as you go through all this, not only Jesus, many others said he was God, but Jesus also, he clearly said he was God. And again, maybe the, the easiest one to remember is John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. But there's so many other places that it's shown that Jesus is God. So this is throughout the scripture. It's not just, you know, oh, here's a verse or there's a verse. It's all over. Okay, so then the second half, we're not going to spend as much time about this because usually this isn't denied as often, but it is still denied sometimes. Jesus is, and Jesus became and still is fully man, truly man. He, he took on humanity. There were some who denied that. I'm sure there still are now. Uh, the Gnostics were one group. Uh, there was, uh, John was dealing with pre-Gnosticism in 1 John, and so he, he was arguing against that. One of the beliefs they had was 
Matter is evil and spirit is good. Right? So, so this idea, if matter is evil, then Jesus couldn't have actually had a body. So they deny that. So they deny that Jesus was a human. They say, oh no, he didn't have a body. Either he, he appeared to have a body, it was an illusion, uh, or he, there's other weird, bizarre things like, oh, he was like in somebody. And then, oh, 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 so not only could he not have a body, he couldn't die. So then there's stories where like, oh yeah, well, Jesus must have been like in someone. And then on the cross, he sneaked out and tricked everybody and someone else died there. And yeah, and these writings are like, oh yeah, he was over there laughing about how he tricked everybody. And it's, it's just utter nonsense and, and silliness, especially if you understand what he, what he came to do and that Jesus, Jesus came to die on the cross. So it's, it's utter, utter nonsense, but there are some who would deny uh, that Jesus was a man. But that's equally important and true. Jesus was and is a man. So John was combating those teachings in 1 John to some extent. So he talked about this kind of thing. 1 John 4, uh, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So Jesus came in the flesh. And the very opening of 1 John talks about what we could see and hear and touch. And he's talking about, you know, why does he say touch? Because Jesus had a body. He touched him. He was physical. He was a man. So that's one of the arguments that John's giving there. So briefly, let's look at some of these. Um, Jesus' titles attest to his humanity. So we have titles of Jesus that attest to his deity. There's also titles that attest to his humanity. Um, he has a human name, Jesus, right? Determined by God, given by Joseph and Mary after his human birth, meaning Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Uh, but, but, but he's given the, a human name. We would argue that's a sign of his humanity, also his deity, because it, mean, it tells us about uh, that he's the salvation that comes. Uh, he's called the son of Joseph, which is emphasizing that, he, that he's a man. That's his line, right? Even though, um, obviously, it's not a blood relationship with Joseph because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? Son of Mary emphasizes his human mother, which is, again, emphasizing humanity. Um, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law. He was born of a woman. And then son of man, which is kind of the parallel that he's called son of God, we looked at, that means he has all the characteristics of God. He is God. Well, on the other side, he's son of man. And this was actually his favorite term that he would call himself uh, in the scriptures, son of man, which means he's one who has all the characteristics of man. He's a man. Uh, it, it indicates the ideal man, what man should have been. And it's used over 80 times in the New Testament. Um, and it points uh, as well to Daniel 7 that talks about uh, one like the son of man. Um, so there's a link to the Old Testament of the promised one. In Daniel 7. Uh, But you see this all the time. He calls himself the son of man. Uh, Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 9, 6. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. So he's calling himself the son of man. Luke 19, 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So he's calling himself the son of man repeatedly. Another title (coughs) 
well, I don't know if you want to call it a title, but he's referred to as man. Okay, uh, John 1.30, John the Baptist, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's, he's a man. Um, you look at uh, John 4.29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He's a man. And then in Romans 5, this is important. We see a comparison, a parallel between Jesus and Adam. So Romans 5, you could start in 12 probably. I think I put 15 there. But you could see the, the comparison, the parallel that's made, being made between Jesus and Adam. Uh, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Uh, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, again, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you've seen this comparison between Adam and Jesus, right? And so that's why he's uh, sometimes called the second Adam or the last Adam. So the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. He succeeded where Adam failed. And Adam brought condemnation to all. Jesus brought salvation, right? He brought justification to those who are in him. Uh, we also see 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So a man, Jesus is a man. And also the other passage in 1 Corinthians. So there's a parallel made there. Uh, we also see uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So he's a man. Okay, but then the next one is related to what we just looked at. He's also called the second or the last Adam. And that wording comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And again, from Romans 5, there's this comparison made. And what Paul's talking about is headship, that that Adam was like the head of the human race and he fell and plunged humanity into sin. And then Jesus, as the new head, he came and he saved us and he's the head of a, of a new people, of the people that are in him. And so you have the comparison of the two heads. 
Uh, we were, ca- were counted as, as sinners in Adam, but then we're counted as righteous in Christ. So there's a comparison between the two. In the book Biblical Doctrine, McCarthy and Mayhew explain the representative headship uh, view asserts that the action of a representative is determinative for members united to him. When Adam sinned, he represented all people. Therefore, his sin is reckoned to his descendants. Jesus' obedience is imputed to others as their righteousness. The logic here suggests that if the justification and righteousness of the Lord Jesus is imputed to those in him, so too the guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to those he represented. Just as Christians are considered righteous because Christ's alien righteousness is imputed to all who are Christ's, so too Adam's guilt is imputed to all his descendants. And Christ had to be one of us to be our representative. That's the key there. He had to be our representative to represent us. He has to be a man. He has to be a person just like Adam was. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. <clears throat> okay, next one. Jesus' flesh attests to his humanity. And we're not gonna we're not gonna spend too much time here. Um, but basically, Hebrews tells us that uh, he, since the therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And he, therefore, verse seventeen, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so he, he came in the flesh, right? Um, again, First John emphasizing that, that he was seen, he was heard, he was touched, and uh, he, he was tempted. He sympathized with our weaknesses, right? Because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Philippians 2, we read where he, that he took on humanity. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So he's human, even after his resurrection, he's continued to have a body and to be fully human. We see when he visited, um, there were amazing things he was able to do, like seemingly maybe walk through a wall or appear somewhere through a wall, things like that. But he has a physical body uh, and he still has the wounds in it. And he showed that to people. They touched him. He ate after he was resurrected. He remains a man. The, uh, the women, that, uh, when he was resurrected, cl- clung to him. Uh, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. So he's touching him and he has a body, right? So he's still a man. And in order to be our high priest and our king, he has to continue to be a man. So that's another thing is that he, he was a man. He took on humanity and he ascended, but he's still a man. He's still God and he's still man. He didn't cease to be man because he still has to be man to be one of us, to be on the Davidic throne, to be our priest and our king. He's got to be man. So he remains man uh, even now. Uh, We see, too, that he developed as a person does. 
So he was conceived, he was born as a baby, he grew up, he matured. So you can go through and look at those, uh, especially Luke covers uh, some of those stages uh, as he grew. Uh, he died like a person would die. He stopped breathing, his spirit separated from his body. There was physical evidence of his death, so he died. He was a man in his death as well. So all of those things point to Jesus being man. So he's truly God. He's truly man. The the last thing I want to do here is then kind of just go through a little bit on why did he have to be God and why did he have to be man? Um, Could there have been another savior? Could God have sent someone else? And maybe did Jesus have to die? Did, you know, could there have been another savior? I mean, that's one of the issues when you talk about other religions and people, one of the things a lot of people have trouble with is they, they really have trouble with like John 14, 6 that says Jesus is the only way to God, right? So why is Jesus the only way to God? And if you understand that, he ha- that the savior had to be God and the savior had to be man, then who qualifies? Only Jesus, Right? There's no one else. So if you understand that that's, that's the only way that the Savior had to be those things, then it's, it's actually pretty clear. Well, it's like, well, yeah, did anyone, was anyone else who you would think could be a Savior in, in your religion, anyone else, any of your holy people, are any of them God? Are any, and are they man, right? And so do they fit the bill? Are they sinless? Are they God and man? Could they have done it? And the answer is they could not have. Uh, so the last part here is to just kind of go through, again, we're kind of running low on time, so not too thoroughly, but just, just a few uh, arguments for why Jesus had to be God and why he had to be man. There's really no other choice. So let's take a look. He had to be God. And uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology gives us several reasons that I think are helpful. So here's number one. Uh, he had to be God. The Savior had to be God in order to bear the full penalty for sin. Grudem writes, Only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. So imagine for a minute that someone else could have gone in our place. Maybe a, a man, but not God. You know, Could God have made a man who wasn't going to sin who could go in our place? but wasn't God. Would that have worked? Is that possible? Uh, but, but it wouldn't have worked because, first of all, he would have to be sinless, which is not going to work because we're all sinners and that's in our nature from conception now. Uh, but even then, if he were somehow sinless, he would still be paying the price and it would never end because it's infinite. As Bruce Ware explains it, The reason that hell is eternal is simply that justice demands a full payment for our sin. And a full payment is impossible for finite humans to render to an infinitely holy God. So were God to impute our sin to this hypothetical uh, sinless second Adam, this one who's not God, but if you imagine this sinless person, and were he to die in our place for our sin, since he's merely human, there would never be a time when he could declare it is finished. Rather, this hypothetical second Adam would continue paying for our sin for all eternity, and hence the guilt of our sin would never be forgiven, and the power of our sin would never be broken. We need a human substitute to be sure. For someone to go in our place, the person has to be human. But we need a human whose payment for sin is of infinite value. 
Therefore, the only one who can save us from our sin is one who is fully man as we are, but one who is fully God so that his payment for our sin can satisfy the infinite demands of God's justice. So he has to be God. As John MacArthur adds, he had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for the sin of mankind. So the first reason the Savior had to be God was to be able to bear the full penalty for sin. Uh, another reason, to save us. Grudem notes that Scripture says salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9, and that the whole message of Scripture is designed to show that no human being, no creature could ever save man, only God himself. He had to be truly God to save us. Hosea 13.4 says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. Besides me, there is no Savior. There's no other one. So God is the Savior. And then uh, the next argument, to be the one mediator between God and man. We needed a mediator to represent us to God. So to represent us to God, he has to be a man. To represent God to us, he has to be God. So as the mediator between us, he has to be God and man. And then we've probably already established the other side of it, um, but Grudem gives us a whole bunch more uh, reasons he had to be man. So he gives us seven reasons it was necessary for Jesus to be man. So let's go through these briefly. Why did Jesus have to be a man? We've already mentioned going in our place, but he starts with, for representative obedience. So Jesus didn't just pay for our sins. If you think about, okay, our sins don't, aren't counted against us, so now we're kind of like neutral. Jesus did more than that. He also lived a perfect life of righteousness that's counted to us who believe. So it's not just, oh, we're neutral and he paid for our sins, but he also lived a perfect life that's counted to us. So, so representative obedience, this is what Grudem's talking about here, that he lived a perfect life that's counted to those who believe. And so he had to live as one of us. He had to live a perfect life as a man. And that's counted to us. Uh, second was what we already mentioned, to be a substitutionary sacrifice, to be able to go in our place. He had to be one of us to be able to go in our place. And we looked at why he had to be God to take on that full penalty, but he also had to be a man so that he could go in our place. The Heidelberg Catechism says, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. So he had to be a man to go in our place. Number three, uh, the, to be a mediator. So we just talked about that on the other side. But again, to be the mediator, he's man to represent us to God. He's God to represent God to us. Uh, to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. Um, yeah, we were just talking about this. George was just talking about this too, right? As the second or the last Adam, Jesus is, is succeeding and has succeeded where Adam failed. He will fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over his creation as his vice regent. He's going to fulfill everything where Adam failed. So Adam was supposed to rule over the creation as God's representative. He sinned. The whole human race was plunged into sin. Jesus is coming back and he's going to set all those things right as they were supposed to be. He's going to rule uh, as a perfect man, and yet God. 
Uh, number five, to be our perfect example, to be our example and pattern for life. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, exhorted many times in Scripture to, to uh, imitate Christ. Uh, Pastor Chance just read one of those passages from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, imitate, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Um, but many other places we read in Romans 8.29 that, that are, we're destined to be conformed to the image of, of his son. So we're supposed to become like Christ. We are going to become like Christ eventually. Uh, but he is the example for us to follow uh, as we live here. Number six, to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. And that goes back to the, where he's, the, he's like the firstborn of the dead that we talked about. That he was resurrected. He was the first one. His resurrection means we're going to get resurrected. And he, his body is the first of the bodies that we're going to receive. So he had to be a man to be the pattern for our new bodies that we will receive. And then finally, number seven, to sympathize as the high priest. Uh, this is what Hebrews tell us, tells us. Um, because he came as a man, because he was tempted, because he suffered, um, then he sympathizes with us as our high priest. He experienced uh, what we experienced. Uh, Burkhoff writes, Only such a truly human mediator who had experiential knowledge of the woes of mankind and rose superior to all temptations could enter sympathetically into all the experiences, trials, and temptations of man and be a perfect human example for his followers. All right, so there you have it. So, um, so just to kind of summarize, uh, the, the point of it is partially at this time of season to just marvel at the fact that God came as a man <laughs> and what he did, right? What he did, why he came as a man, what he did to save us. And then just also just, just understand the reality of what that, what that is, that he, he is God, fully, truly God, never ceased to be God, and he's also fully, truly man. He took on humanity. He didn't cease being God, but he took on humanity, and then he went in our place. Um, so hopefully this will help you if you have any, any doubts about it or if someone comes and argues against his deity. You kind of have a place you can go, uh, verses you could look to. Um, and then just maybe help, help, hopefully it helps a little bit with understanding uh, why. Why did he have to be a man? Why did he have to be God? And therefore, there can't be any other savior.